HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who I find extraordinary, fascinating, and I just want to learn more. Today, that is the perfect description for Rose McAdoo, who is a visual artist who uses cake as a medium to explore incredibly important themes like climate change and environmental protection. Welcome, Rose. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. You have been to so many extraordinary places and then translated them into cake and then used like cake and science to teach all of us so much about the world and how it's changing in front of our very eyes. What an amazing project. Thank you. Thank you. It can feel a little disconnected sometimes, but it's been really exciting, honestly. I wouldn't I wouldn't change it. That's so interesting. Why does it sometimes feel disconnected? At least in the culinary world, and I do feel like it's changing a bit, but Often there's kind of, you know, one trajectory, the classic restaurant, pastry kitchen, industry and circle. And so to stray from that path has been a little scary and it's often very independent. Uh, it's typically self-funded and bouncing between all of these different places and exploring all the themes that I'm really passionate about. It's been challenging over the years to try to blend those and kind of bring them under one umbrella and even identify the umbrella in the first place. Let's just dial back a little bit because you didn't have a traditional route. How did you get started in cakes? Like take me back to nine cakes in Brooklyn, which seems to be at least a part of the beginning. Yeah, I, that honestly feels like the big, you know, 180 in the career. Um, one that I'm very, very grateful for. What had you done before that? Prior to that, um, well, I did a kind of in high school, like a two-year dual enrollment program. So I would go to normal high school for half the day and then this kind of culinary pastry trade school for half the day. Um, and then from there, I just started working in kitchens and was definitely always the most interested in cake, but ended up in in varying roles in the food service industry. The short list is that I ended up in Lake Powell Resort in Arizona for a year, uh, building out a dessert menu there before I had any business doing that, which was a blessing, but very stressful as a, you know, 20 year old. Um, and then ended up in Ithaca, New York, uh, doing a lot of catering and working as the head chef for a farm to table restaurant and eventually moved to Brooklyn and headed up production and events and education outreach at Mass Brothers Chocolate, um, kind of at the peak of their heyday. And then kind of as things were changing there, I moved over to to work at Nine Cakes under Betsy Thorlifson. And I had, you know, made cakes since middle school that were absolutely horrific and so <laughs> had enough of a portfolio to get hired under her, which I feel very lucky for. And so it was just her and I when I first started. And then she really, again, she really blew up at that time too. So I feel like I hit the jackpot in my timing of these these roles. So you got to Nine Cakes and talk about like those cakes are just like extravagant. They're beautiful and colorful and complicated and must be challenging. And and they're also, you know, for occasions. It, it, it's quite different from the work you're doing now. But what was it like working at 
Nine Cakes. Oh, I mean, such a blast. But like I said, Betsy, I was her only employee when I came in. I stepped in for someone going on maternity leave. It was just her and I, you know, and she scaled up and went from 4,000 Instagram followers to like whatever, 25,000 or something, and was getting all these Brides and Brides Magazine and Martha Stewart. And just like, was so fun to scale up you know, her business and get to do that alongside her as her right hand was such a luxury. And yeah, we were making just the most elegant over the top. I mean, we worked with Joe Meyer on a, a dream wedding where we made this seven foot tall cake for uh, a woman who's in the WNBA and wanted the cake taller than her in high heels, you know? So it was just very, very extravagant. We got to make Gwyneth Paltrow's wedding cakes and these, you know, just really, it was like my dream come true. But then over the years, I, you know, doing all the wedding cake tastings and things and women would come in with these engagement rings, like the size of my face. And I was just like, oh, there's so much more than your wedding, you know? And I kind of had a hard time reckoning with that. And that was also the time of Obama's presidency was coming to an end. There was the inauguration of Trump. And I there was just so many stories that I thought were more important than these over-the-top weddings. And there's absolutely a place for, for wedding cakes and celebration in that fashion. But I wanted to kind of build something different with that tool. It sounded like almost at the same time that you were working at Nine Cakes, you also started doing some work that had more meaning to you, like with refugees and cakes that honor refugees, like at the Brooklyn Grange. And can you tell me about that work? Like, did you do that at the same time? I did, which was really fun. At my exit from Mass Brothers, um, I had a connection through the Brooklyn Grange um, from that job. And so kind of started simultaneously apprenticing at the farm, working in their events program, and also working at Nine Cakes. And a big reason I wanted to work at Brooklyn Grange on Wednesdays in particular was because they partnered with the New York City Refugee and Immigrant Fund and did, you know, farm training in a, a small way, but also more importantly, I think it was more about the community building. And so people who were seeking asylum in the United States came and pra practiced English and, you know, were able to find some sort of routine, even if it was once a week, they got a small stipend and um, it was great for them. I think it was also just as good for all of us and got to make some really close friendships with, you know, people from Nigeria and Rwanda and Pakistan and Iran and was really very formative to me and in the way that I wanted to build relationships and engage in the world on a, a bigger scale. New York's a perfect place to be able to do that. And wanted to get more involved with that and so started making dessert bars that told a bigger story. So for the 4th of July at the Brooklyn Grange Rooftop Farm, they put on a whole themed event that was about immigration in the U.S. and kind of um, a real big, you know, middle finger to the presidency at that time, which was quite appreciated. And so I made a, a huge dessert bar with desserts that came from the five countries that contributed the most or kind of put the most migrants into the world. And that really carried on then into my work with Whisk Me Away Cakes. And when I was working at Nine Cakes, I was able to use that kitchen. And so started making cakes about, you know, gun control and built this, you know, bust of the Statue of Liberty wearing a hijab and just making cakes that visually said more than a pretty white cake with blush roses, which felt really good. The gun control cake, will you describe it? Because it's extraordinary and shocking, but also quite beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, cakes are inherently beautiful and fun to look at regardless of their structure. Um, and so there's so much room to play there. And uh, the gun control cake in particular is pretty small. It's a uh, like a six or eight inch single tier white cake, um, kind of a broken deckled edge on the top highlighted in gold. I have a hand-painted watercolor kind of two and a half D handgun going into one side of the cake and then exploding out from the other side are the five state flowers of the states with the highest mortality rate from guns that year. It felt important and it felt really exciting to be able to use my art in this way that, you know, I was able to engage with really heavy topics, but still do it in a way that people weren't scared to look at or talk about. Um, and so I think blending the fun and frivolous and beautiful with the heavy and depressing has been really healthy for me. And I think 
is what gives my work um, more impact, I think, too. So one of the things that you mentioned was talking to people from all over the place. And something that I found astonishing in the work that you've done is how far you've traveled. I'd love to hear when you were in Haiti or Argentina, um, what were you doing as you were traveling the world? Yeah, I had at that point just had this kind of small idea that I could use desserts to tell bigger stories. And I had had some small proof of concept with um, the dessert bars and the refugee fund events and was really curious if this was something that I could, scale is not the right word, but maybe put on a larger stage and uh, wanted to explore that. And so headed to East Africa for six and a half weeks. It was my first and my longest solo trip. And then traveled through Kenya and Rwanda, Democratic Republic of Congo, and then around the Lake Victoria area and made desserts with various populations. So my Actually, my good friend from the Refugee and Immigrant Fund set me up with his whole family in um, in Rwanda, and I got to go make these huge 600-person wedding cakes in Kigali, which was really fun. Uh, got to make crepes on the summit of this volcano in the DR of Congo with my, uh, my porter and his whole team, uh, and just talk a lot about wedding cake culture in Congo, a place where, you know, they're forced to move all the time because of so many varying groups moving in and out of regions. So when you went and you planned a, a six-week trip, like what did you bring and what was your goal? On that trip, my goal was to see if this was something that I could explain to other people and kind of gauge interest. You know, making desserts with populations that I had not connected with before and honestly didn't know very much about, like Maasai tribes people in Kenya or uh, porters in Virunga National Park and in the DR of Congo. Can I connect with groups of people through the lens of desserts? And will people be interested in sharing desserts and sharing stories and cooking together? And it was a very minimalist trip. So I just brought backpacking equipment for the most part. I didn't bring any tools. And then I cooked on site and I also didn't come with any agenda. I was so scared of being the little blonde girl that that goes to, you know, Africa to teach people. You know, I just, that just terrified me and it was not what I wanted to do. But then once I got over there and was cooking and, and people were being so generous toward me and sharing their food and sharing their recipes, they wanted things in return. They wanted, you know, to share recipes and they wanted to explore ingredients. I feel very lucky that I've been able to stay in touch with a few people from that trip. And, um, you know, the there's a, a trained chef that works in tourism with the Maasai tribe. And he and I have, you know, exchanged some recipes over the years or my, my porter in Virunga and I still stay in close touch. And so I'm glad that that's been an option because I definitely learned on that trip. There's a way to go in and bring things more as like an offering or an exchange of ideas as opposed to just putting your agenda on other people. And what did you learn like in doing the cooking on location and I guess cooking with people, not cooking for people? Yeah, it's a lot more fun to cook, <laughs> to cook with people instead of for people. Um, I also learned that there is so much more joy in that. Like I had a very instant connection with people. They brought me in and trusted me faster than was maybe fair. And I think that that's because we wanted to make dessert together. And there's, I, I learned that there's an inherent joy in making desserts. I learned that there's, you know, so much potential for connection, regardless of whether you can even speak to each other, you know, it doesn't matter. And I'm so often frustrated as I'm living on the road or living out of a backpack. You know, I get so frustrated that I don't have access to a commercial kitchen space or like I have to ship, you know, ingredients or tools or whatever to wherever I am. And it's so easy for me to get jealous of, you know, my peers back in New York or people I admire that I'm like, oh, they're just, they're doing all of these amazing projects. And then I, it's easy for me to feel sorry for myself, which I really have to catch myself on. But every project that I go do, I'm often, almost always cooking with people who have less access to resources and are able to do just as much, if not more. And that's been a really humbling lesson for me to learn, you know, whether it's 
in East Africa or or in prisons in LA and New York or whether it's in Antarctica or, you know, cooking out of my backpack in Alaska. It's just I have proof that all of these other communities can do so much with so little and that really restores me and, you know, lifts me back up. I just have this amazing team of mentors after all of these projects, whether they know it or not. So what are some of the greatest stories that came out of that six-week trip? Like, take us all there. So my friend's mom that I went to stay with in the high mountains of Rwanda, um, her son, so my friend's brother and I decided to make um, pancakes, essentially, for his mom as a thank you. And they were so excited and they kept calling it gateau. And it's like, we're literally just made, it's like flour and, you know, an egg. Um, and they were just so generous in their, their, uh, description of it. But it was really fun to be able to make desserts there. And the moment that meant the most to me on that trip was being able to make desserts with her, her other son and for her. And then, with her son helping translate from Kenya Rwandan to French to English to, you know, be able to assure her that her son was doing well in New York. And, you know, he had to flee very suddenly. And um, it's hard to stay in touch with him. And her biggest concern was just like, does he have friends? And is he ha- is he happy? And so it was really hugely impactful to me as a human being and to her as a mother um, and to be able to have that conversation over dessert, you know, after going to the market and buying each ingredient from a different vendor and being in his town and these connections, you know, they seem disconnected, but they're, they're so not, and they're so relevant. You spent a lot of time backpacking and you're a glacier guide. And where did all this start? Like, like, where do you train? You know, tell me about the backpack part of your, your life. I grew up camping, but very much only car camping in Northern California at that time. And then it wasn't until I landed in Alaska for the first time when I was 19. And, you know, I dated a boy who liked backpacking. And that was my introduction to backpacking in Denali National Park, which is wild. I mean, that's one of the best places in the world to go backpacking. Uh, So I feel very lucky that that's where I fell in love with it. And, you know, that's when I had just turned 19. I didn't realize you could just carry everything on your back and make all your food out of a backpack. I I mean, I was very naive going into all of that. And it's not something I was introduced to, you know, when I was growing up. It also gives you so much access to the world um, in a very inexpensive way. So I'm sure you know, bakers don't make a ton of money. And it was, you know, the best way to be able to see the world on a pretty low budget, which was uh, very empowering. And I would say as far as the training, when I was in Antarctica over a full year, I um, applied and was accepted to be on our winter search and rescue team um, as the only woman on the U.S. team. And talk about imposter syndrome. I was just like rolling every week. We had full day trainings. And um, I learned as fast as possible. I studied a lot more than everyone else on the team. And it was so empowering to be able to learn all of these rope rescue skills in the middle of the night. You know, it's dark 24 hours a day for four months down there in the winter. And so we were, yeah, learning how to use radar to navigate blind across crevasse fields in these like ridiculous multi-million dollar amphibious vehicles. Yeah, it's just a ridiculous experience. Yeah, what is your life? And you're also dealing with hazardous waste. Like, I know what you're talking about, but for the listeners, let's dial back. Let's get to Antarctica, like when you took a job at McMurdo Station. Antarctica had been on my radar since I was 19, that first summer in Alaska, and had been in the back of my mind. And I knew that I was going to regret not going if I ended up being 80 years old and never went for it. Um So applied. And my first season, which is really wild, I got an offer to be one of the sous chefs at McMurdo Station. So it's the headquarters of the U.S. Antarctic base. It's um, absolutely massive. It's one of three U.S. bases on the continent. And during the summer season, we were feeding um, over 1,100 people and we are kitchen operated 24 hours a day. 
Huge, huge effort. Yeah. Why does the kitchen operate 24 hours a day? Because it's light there 24 hours a day during the summer. Oh. And so we have, yeah, we have 24 hour teams um, just to get all of the work done and support all the science teams that are out in the field. And uh, it's a massive operation and it's, it's amazing to be part of it. And it, at this point, feels like home, which is insane. <laughs> it feels more like home than anywhere else, which um, is bizarre to me. So wait, I, what, do, what does home look like when you're there? So like you're part of this massive station, but like, are there huts? Is it like, I, mean, I don't know, what, what, what are the living situations like? Do you live with people? Do you bring, there's a weight limit, right? Like there's only so much you can bring there. Like I want to know everything. I was working at like I said, McMurdo Station, which is just south of New Zealand, actually. So we fly down via military cargo plane, and you're allowed to bring up to 85 pounds of stuff with you, you know, but you also have to save room. So I think you can bring something like 70 pounds when you go down, and then they give you an extra 15 pounds of extreme cold weather gear. Once you're in New Zealand, you get fitted for your your parka and your boots and your, you know, Carhartt bibs, whatever other um, pieces of extreme gear you need. All that to be said, the summer months are really not that extreme unless you're out at a field camp. You know, if you're in McMurdo Station and that's where you're working, which is true for most people, life is pretty easy. Like it is really not the the Shackleton Extreme Expedition Antarctica that people think of. It's a huge station that's been operating since the 50s. And there's, you know, like I said, a massive commercial kitchen. And there's really, they're not the fanciest pieces of housing, but pretty nice shared housing. You know, you're living in a heated dorm with uh, one to four other people, depending on your kind of seniority down there. Yeah, food is free. You go to the dining hall, there's a, a band room with uh, a huge selection of musical instruments and people form bands down there. Yeah, there's like all these fun runs and there's dance parties. And it is just such a fun group of people who are up for an amazing adventure and want to be part of something really important. And so it's honestly such a blast. So you were doing you were doing the sous chef work, so you're feeding lots of people, but you also made time to do your own work. And in doing your own work, you're collaborating with scientists and data. And um, I'd love to hear more about that. You know, down there, the U.S. Antarctic Program is a government-funded entity, and you can't use any materials down there for personal gain. So my first season, I actually waited until I was off the ice and I made cakes about Antarctic science when I was back up in Alaska to make sure that I wasn't messing with my contract at all. And then when I returned to Antarctica, I was lucky enough to have that work featured in NPR and Forbes. And that gave me a tiny bit more freedom to be able to, well, to be fair, I also brought, <laughs> I brought a ton of fondant and cake decorating tools down to Antarctica with me, used about 65 pounds of my 85 pound weight limit to bring tubs of fondant and a pasta roller and all these ridiculous tools. I was planning to spend the year down there and knew I was going to need to be able to make cakes and work with sugar if I was going to keep my sanity for a full year <laughs> in the darkness. So it was important to me to bring all of that stuff down. Right. You were talking about 24 hours of light, but when it happens when it's 24 hours of dark, like that must change things quite a bit. It actually surprisingly doesn't change things very much. Um, you can still go out hiking. You still work outside the majority of winter. So over the summer, my second season, I got to be the sous chef at a NASA field camp, which was really exciting. But then at the end of that season, like I said, was planning on spending the winter and I got an option to move into the hazardous waste department. And so I went through about 90 hours of training in chemical management and risk management and got forklift and bulldozer trained and um, such a whirlwind of new information. Um, and so during that time over the winter, like I said, Stark all the time and we were still working outside and negative 70 degree weather, like that work still has to get done. Um, so you just keep really good tabs on cold weather management and watch your teammates, but life carries on for the most part. So it was good, good training. I don't, good training for what are you going to, do you think you're going to use those skills at other times in your life? Like forklift, hazardous waste material, disposal. The hazardous waste disposal, probably not, although I am curious if I can make delicious looking cakes about hazardous toxic waste. I'm still trying to brainstorm that concept. 
But I honestly, all of the cold weather management stuff I've already used in my time in Alaska quite a bit. The forklift and bulldozer training is pretty usable in other parts of the world as well if I wanted to do general maintenance stuff. It did, honestly, all things to say about it, boosted my confidence so much as a woman. And uh, here I was like bulldozing a hazardous waste yard for five days in the pitch dark alone with, you know, shipping containers full of hazardous waste around me that I couldn't run into. And that sounds like a, seems like a really bad video game. It does. And it felt like that when I was learning, my God, it was horrifying. But uh, yeah, between that and getting to, to volunteer on the winter search and rescue team, I just gained so much confidence of myself and my ability to learn new skills. I very much felt like a pastry chef that like, you know, a little baker girl that that was all I knew. I had only ever worked in kitchens and I was 29 years old and that's all I'd ever done. And I didn't know how to do anything else. And I felt really insecure about that and didn't know if I would ever be able to work in any other sector outside of kitchens. And that winter in Antarctica, I just gained so much confidence and learned so many new skills. And that confidence, I think, rapidly played into my ability to be a stronger creative. And as you gain confidence in yourself, you gain confidence in your ideas. You're more willing to risk uh, putting yourself out there a little more and sharing your stories more publicly and putting out maybe weird ideas you have. Um, and so I'm very grateful for that. And so I will say the the forklifting random stuff in Carhartt Bibs has made me a more confident pastry chef and creative. Let's talk about some of the cakes that you made using the information that you gleaned um, when you were either at McMurdo Station or NASA's Long Duration Atmospheric Research Camp, because those cakes just sound fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, there was everything from paleontology in the dry valleys of Antarctica, this landscape that looks like Mars in the middle of you know, this ice field, um, made a cake about a paleontology project that they were excavating out there and looking for the, this creature that is the link between fish and amphibians. So it's a fish with, with finger bones, with phalange bones. No way. That's so cool. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And they found, they found pieces of it that supported their cause. They found the um, the fossil, the skeleton fossils up in the Arctic and based on all of the contents being together at one time, they were pretty confident that, and they still are confident that the same fossils would exist in the geology of Antarctica. They were out in the field for a few weeks. Uh, it's a big place. They, they found a ton of fossils. They are still in the process of going through all of them now. Um, but I just thought that project was super fascinating. Uh Obviously, the closest relationships that I made were at the NASA field camp, and kind of premise of that camp is that they send these huge clear balloons. Um, so if you imagine a kind of pseudo hot air balloon, but one that inflates with helium so large that it can encompass an entire football field, uh, or entire football stadium, excuse me, just massive, massive balloon. Um, and if the weather is 100% perfect, and I mean 100%, like there are some seasons down there that they don't send any balloons into space. Um, our season, we were really lucky to have three successful launches, and that is really rare and very exciting. Uh, but they send these balloons into space. We inflate them on the ice sheet with these massive helium guns that are attached to huge trucks. Um, and they launch these balloons, like I said, up into space, about, I think, 130,000 feet into the atmosphere. And those balloons carry these metal uh, contraptions, essentially, or steel steel beams with a bunch of science experiments attached to them. Uh, and one of the science teams that I was very close friends with, their team name was BLAST, the next generation. And BLAST is an acronym that's so techy, I can't even remember what it stands for, but to be 100% honest, but they were sending cameras and telescopes and a huge mirror up into space and photographing, taking thermal images of our galaxies. And by finding areas where the magnetic fields aligned correctly and there was hot spots in the thermal image, 
that means that there's more likelihood for particle collision in those areas, and that's where star formation is most likely to, to occur in the future. Um, so they're literally photographing our galaxy's future, which is insane and so cool. Um, and so I made a big hand-painted 3D fondant map of their thermal image that they were really proud of um, from their previous season down there. And that was really fun. And I got to, you know, display it at the McMurdo Art Gallery, which is such a fun highlight of the summer. Yeah, but it's it's really exciting to be able to focus on visual storytelling. So how hard is it to actually understand what the scientists are doing? Like, do you spend a lot of time understanding the science, talking to the scientists before you, you know, decide what story you want to tell? You know, while you're there, you could tell a million different stories. Like, how do you make that choice? And and how do the scientists help you there? Yeah, absolutely. I I was really surprised by the diversity of science happening down there. Um, I mean, it's very easy to have a naive understanding of what is going on at the bottom of the world, right? You assume there are penguin scientists and maybe like seal scientists and I don't really know what else, right? And then I went down there and there's this paleontology team and there's all these space scientists and there's uh, a whole team that's drilling ice cores and taking air samples from the glacier ice that's 2 million years old. And there's just this bizarre diversity of science. And I felt like people were asking me these really basic questions like, oh, how cold is it? Do you see penguins? You know, and I was like, okay, yes, yes, yes. But there's also all these really cool stories happening and these brilliant people that have dedicated like 30 years to being able to ask this one question. I, I am a strong believer that our weird fascinations with things really inspire other people's weird fascinations about things. So I decided to tell the stories of the science teams and their projects down there and really showcase that diversity of, of research that was happening. And so on the ground, that looks like really awkwardly introducing yourself and very embarrassingly and humbly asking very repetitive basic questions and saying, I still don't understand. Can you dumb it down even more, even more? And it's really easy for them to talk about their work in a really heady way because they're so um, in tune with it and so hyper-focused and they've studied it for decades and decades. And so I think it's actually really useful to have people who don't have traditional science backgrounds, who don't have training in these really um, unique sectors of, of sciences and being able to figure out exactly what's going on and then help kind of communicate those specific interests in a very different way. I think that the more diverse voices that we can have in science communication, the more people are going to be able to engage in those stories in the first place, and then hopefully support those stories and believe in science and get excited about these places that they may not have had access to previously. Hi, I'm Kiki Luya, the executive director of Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Shift Work. In the last six months, some 6,500 restaurants have closed their doors, and there's never been a time when restaurants and their 12 million workers have been more vulnerable. It's time to transform hospitality. With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. What does it really take to make that experience happen? And who are the countless workers responsible? We're talking porters, cleaning crew, prep cooks, servers, baristas, hosts, bartenders, barbacks, managers, sommeliers, and chefs. I'll also introduce you to organizations that are leading industry transformation. We'll discuss mental health, fair pay, racial justice, and how hospitality can change for the better. We need it. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Glacier Collection because um, I had the pleasure of like eating and digesting science through you, this, the dessert stories. And some of the things that really struck me were I had no idea that glaciers were full of tiny worms and I definitely didn't know the worms were black and I didn't know that there were like 10 billion of them. I mean, I just learned so much all through this one box of sweets that represented science. So maybe you could just tell us about how the Glacier Collection 
came to pass. And then we can talk about some of the delicious and incredible things inside. Yeah, I have been, like I said, making desserts for so long. And I feel like the dessert stories collections, I'm finally reaching this point where I'm like, this is the thing that I want to be doing. I never had this traditional education. I wasn't able to graduate from college. It's been very expensive, as you're familiar with, because you're an American. Um, And so it's really been so exciting to create my own hands-on education, you know, going and talking to scientists instead of sitting in a classroom and learning about it and going and working on glaciers instead of taking a class about, you know, X, Y, or Z. And while I still crave a more traditional education, I, I think the dessert stories collection for me is so exciting because I'm able to create this anthology of experiences and then actually share those stories. This first box focused on glaciers, um, kind of five or six different aspects of glacier science. And I created a 12-page booklet that I was really proud of that included a lot of photos from my summer glacier guiding in Alaska and also my 10-day field-based art residency um, with the North Cascades Glacier Climate Project in Washington this summer. And between those two experiences, I've really learned so much about yeah, the fact, like you said, that glaciers are full of ice worms and they're the only animal that lives their entire life and gets everything they need from this ice chunk um, in the middle of nowhere. And I learned that glaciers are basically cakes and they are just a series. If you take, you know, a four tier cake and you let it sit there for a long time, assuming you're not great at building cakes and you have not put any internal structure into them, like that cake is going to compress upon itself and it's going to get denser and denser. And that cake at the bottom is going to squirt out all of its icing. It's going to get squished. And that's exactly how glacier ice forms. So really putting this big abstract concept of just glaciers and climate change into this really tangible little box, right, was so exciting. I mean, I had been brainstorming ideas during my time on the ice all summer. And so it was really fun to be able to actually go back to Nine Cakes. Um, She's now in Hudson, New York, and use her kitchen. And my friends that work there were so amazing, especially my, my partner in crime, Chelsea Burgess. She is just an angel on all things creative, reined me in, helped me actually execute the project. But we made over 1,500 pieces of desserts. We hand-bagged, hand-stickered, hand-boxed, hand-packaged, hand-shipped. Like It was a really involved process. Yeah, ice worms turned into charcoal gummy worms and watermelon snow algae turned into watermelon fruit leather and crevasse formation turned into pop rock lollipops where you can see, you know, the movement and shape solidified in in a lollipop form. When you were, you've been in the same place over time, so you've seen climate change sort of firsthand. Like, what what was that like? I mean, you does it feel scary just watching those changes? Yeah, it it hit me a lot harder this past summer in Alaska than I was expecting. You know, I signed up to Glacier Guide on Exit Glacier in Seward, Alaska, and then ended up guiding on a few other glaciers in the surrounding valleys as well. And so I knew I was going to see a little bit of change, a little bit of melt. You know, I figured I would see like some rivers surge more than I was expecting or, or something like that. What I was not prepared for was having to go to a brand new location every three days to get my clients dressed before we went on the ice because that ice had melted back in the past three days. So there was two more feet of rock before you actually got to the ice. And the just the mass amount of retreat, like by the end of the summer, we would hike up to the glacier and we're on multiple glaciers. I would do this where we would hit various rocks. And I would say, this is where I got my clients ready in May. This is where I got my clients ready in June. This is where I got my clients ready in July, August. And now it's the end of September and we're going to continue hiking over there. And that was really horrible to watch, but also really special for me to be able to physically show people the rocks of where that glacier was and like to give people this hands-on visual experience And so I want to be able to do that as a glacier guide, of course, but I also want to be able to do that for people who are 
based in cities or, you know, don't have the access or ability to go and visit these spaces. And so the the dessert collection has been a really exciting way to start doing that. There's something that you had said that really stayed with me and seemed like a little hook for change for all of us for the future, which is um, you said that we need to stop seeing ourselves as different from our surroundings and start seeing ways in which we are our surroundings. Um, do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah. I, After being in Antarctica for a full year, I really wanted to make some sort of peace on site in Antarctica before I left. And so my last full day there after, like I said, a full year, um, four friends and I, we each carried a little cake tier out onto this precipice and hiked up. And I decorated a cake out on this kind of rocky ledge overlooking the open ocean with a bunch of seals down below and the Royal Society mountain range, all ice capped and snowy, you know, kind of as the backdrop to this shot and made um, kind of a self-portrait. So it's a woman's loosely myself, but a woman's face and her hair is cascading down over the bottom three tiers and her hair becomes the topographic map lines of the Antarctic Peninsula that we were on. And that really summed up a lot for me, that experience of living in Antarctica for a year, especially during COVID when the rest of the world had just shut down. And we were living in the space that was like the last safe place on earth, essentially. And we had this incredible tiny group of people. We were locked down more than more than the station had been locked down. You know, they canceled all of our food and medical support flights. And, you know, it was, yeah, it was a wild experience. And so I really wanted to sum that up. And I did a lot of thinking toward the end of the season. And um, what I kept coming back to is just that, like, I feel this place is in me in this very different way. And it doesn't just feel like, oh, I went to Antarctica and it was cool, but it feels like this place inherently changed me. I care so much more about this place now because I've spent more time here and I feel like I've become it and it's become me. And it feels like more of this oneness. And I think that's true for a lot of people who go down there, you know, for repeated seasons. And I really want to carry that with me as I'm, you know, in Alaska, I want to also engage with that space in such a deep way. And same thing in New York or or cities, you know, and I think that the more that we become a place, we're going to protect that place because we love it and we care about it. And that that message is pretty simple and straightforward, but it felt really different after a year on the ice, which was really cool. I just wanted to talk about um, the work that you've done with incarcerated people, both in California and New York, because that also has a personal resonance for you. And it's just talk about like bringing forth people's humanity. I felt like the project of you telling stories through cakes with the incarcerated was really moving. Can you tell me like how that came about? Um, My dad was incarcerated when I was eight. He went into the jail system in California. Um, I testified against him as a little kid. We don't have a relationship now. Um, I don't want one, but I definitely, as, um, as a person, as a woman, as a creative individual, as someone who believes in the power of storytelling and human honesty and vulnerability, that's something I've really struggled with as I've gotten older and like created this creative business, um, it felt really hard to go into other communities and ask them to be vulnerable with their stories when I didn't feel I was being vulnerable with my own. And on top of that, like I said, we don't have a a good relationship. And I uh, have always felt really curious about like what his experience in the jail system was like. And I had never been into a jail or prison. Um, like we didn't visit him or anything. And I've, that's really stayed with me my whole life. I've always been so curious. And then I also, you know, the last kind of precursor to this answer is that I heard a lot of murmurings about how people in jail or prison, they get access to so many amazing resources. Like there's libraries, there's computer classes, you can get your college degree. Like it's not even that hard to be in prisons or jail. Um, And that's a lot of the messaging I heard growing up. And I was curious if that was true. And I felt a a lot of 
confusion about what, like how I felt about that. Like, should people have access to resources in prison or should they just be punished, you know? And I, I kind of thought like, well, they should be having a miserable time in there. You know, they, w- why do they get to like better themselves instead of getting punished for the thing that they did? Which is definitely a very naive perspective, I feel, now that I've, yeah, worked with a couple of different populations and and read a lot more. And What do you feel like the approach or thinking should be? Because I think what you just described is what a lot of people do feel. I think so, too. And I, I think that there's some legitimate, you know, legitimacy to that. Of course, I understand on a personal level, like the anger and hatred that is felt toward people who have done terrible things. Um, and, you know, the desire for those people to just rot in a jail cell. Like, I get that. I have felt that. And so it's been really a wild personal experience to then challenge that for myself and bring this, again, fun, frivolous thing into um, a jail and a prison and ask people firsthand, like, learn firsthand what these programs do for people. And it's really 180 in my experience. And I I think that people deserve to be creative in any space that they're in. I don't think that there's really room for growth without the opportunity to be reflective and like be, be human. Um, and I think in order for me, I, the way I've been able to be human in the world is by making things. Can you just tell the story, because I thought this is amazing, of how long it took you to get into that facility and then your expectation when you went through that last door of like, you know, what was going to happen. And yeah, it was a nightmare, um, an easier nightmare than when I went to Rikers, which is funny now looking back with (laughs) a little more perspective, but, um, yeah, we showed up. So a friend of mine, uh, has worked in that facility for five years, um, in writing workshop, capacity. And so I got to go in with her and do kind of a culinary version of her kind of development program. I had gotten my security and, uh, you know, background clearance checked off ahead of time. We were supposed to be good to go. We showed up and they said, oh, well, the prison has been closed to all visitors for two weeks. Like there's not a chance you can go in. They had lost my, my clearance and all of my you know, paperwork to be able to go in. Um, so we ended up stranded in the security room, which, by the way, at the time, all the security guards were rolling their eyes and mocking us for trying to do a cake decorating class in a prison. And I was really second guessing myself, wondering if this was like the worst idea in the world. Um, and we just sat there for hours and eventually the warden of the facility, which, by the way, was this very friendly, warm um, woman of color, which I was just like, hell yes, um, warden, this is so exciting. She came in and like personally apologized and, you know, pushed us through security, which was super lucky. But we ended up showing up two hours late to our own two-hour workshop. And my friend Lucy said, you know, heads up, the guys probably aren't going to be there. They probably didn't even get called from their cells to or rooms um, to come to the workshop in the first place if they were in this closed off period with programming. Um, so just like, don't expect a lot. And I was like, okay, okay. Expectations managed. We walked through, you know, this like 15 minute walk through the blazing hot sun of LA, through the prison yards. Um, you know, people are shouting at us through the gates. It all felt very, very Actually, I don't even know the word. It was a crazy experience, just wild. And we finally walk into the building and we go to head into the room that we were going to be teaching this workshop in. And not only were there a couple people there, but every single one of them was there. And they just have been sitting and waiting with no information for hours. And they all just cheered when we walked in. And there was just this like joy and welcoming that I was not expecting at all. Um, And it was, I mean, truly just blew my mind. And they were all so excited to do this weird workshop that they had a lot of questions about. Um, As as did I, I was like, I don't even know if this is going to work. But yeah, it ended up being this amazing experience. But because we showed up so late, it was like, it ended up feeling like an episode of like Iron Chef or Chopped or something where, you know, we did our introductions and we 
we did kind of the first half of the workshop. And then by the time we were ready to start decorating, it was like, okay, guys, I'm sorry, but you've got 13 minutes. And they had to like, I split them into four groups um, of five and gave them a couple different prompts, uh, everything about, you know, what did food mean to you before when you were, you know, outside of prison? What does food mean to you now? How do, um, how does food and desserts like connect people across various lines here on the inside? Um, And what message would you like to share with people outside of these doors? And so they answered those prompts visually on, on the cakes and we ate afterwards, but it was just madness and mayhem and so much fun. Um, And it really showed me so much about creating space for people to laugh and have fun and share their stories. And that experience was one of the most humanizing things I've ever done. At the very end of the workshop, one of the guys came up to me and asked, I don't even know why, but he started, or I guess I had shared that um, my dad had been incarcerated. And so he came up to me and asked if I had any tips for how he could reconnect with his daughter who didn't want a relationship with him. And I just like my whole world zoomed out and we were both eating cake and we were having this conversation. And I said, like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I have not restored that relationship for myself. And it just was this, yeah, really probably the most impactful conversation I've ever had over cake. One of the things that also moved me about the story is the person who made a cake for you. And his creativity, which is just off the charts. Yeah, he is an incredible, incredible man. He actually was just released, which is really exciting. California had a change in legislature, which has allowed people who were previously not given the opportunity to get parole. Like a few select folks in California are now eligible to apply for the possibility of parole. Um, And so... He has since gotten that and been released, which is amazing. Um, but his name is Dante. He's just this like very funny, funny man who stood up in the actually toward the beginning of the workshop and said, "Hey, before we get started on decorating our cakes, like I wanted to give you a cake as well as a thank you for coming and spending time with us." And so he was like, "Have you ever had a prison cake?" And I was like, "Obviously, I have not. I'm very excited." And he had started making these cakes, I'm not sure exactly when, but, you know, years before in facilities where he had fewer resources. When I went to visit, like they were in an honors program, so they had slightly more access to kitchens and stuff. But anyway, at another facility, he would get a bowl of water, stick a stripped wire in the bowl of water and plug in a fan. And that would cause an electrical current to go and heat the water really fast. And he would use that as a double boiler for melting M&Ms so that he could have melted chocolate. And then he mixed in um, a mashed banana with that that he would steal from the commissary kitchen and like trade people to smuggle him bananas. And then from commissary, he would get, you know, stale cookies of whatever type. So Oreos, Chips Ahoy, old stale shortbread, whatever. And he would crumble them all up and mix those with powdered milk until it created a sort of dough. He would press that dough into a cup, fill the cookie cup with this banana chocolate mixture, and then decorate it with cookies on top. And then would, you know, put it in a cold place, either a a windowsill or if he had a fridge, a fridge. And that he presented me with three of those and they were delicious. Like this very chewy mash pot of cookies, like cookies are delicious, whatever. hard to go wrong. And then this, yeah, banana chocolate filling. But I really want to partner with Dante now that he's out and do some cake workshops with him, um, either via Zoom or partner on a dessert stories box with him, you know, give him more opportunity to share the stories he wants to share, make some money. That would be such a beautiful outcome, you know, if if you got to do a box together or just, I mean, even the outcome to this point, like he got to share his love of cakes. You got to eat them. Um, why do you think that all all 20 of them showed up and stayed? Like, what was it that was more compelling about cake making than probably anything else? I think the fact that it had no place there and it made no sense. And I think that there's a lot of power to that and bringing, you know, <laughs> I'm, I get really self-conscious. I'm like bringing cakes where they don't belong. Um, 
making them on glaciers, bring them into prisons. Like, um, what am I doing? Uh, a lot of times I feel like a lot of self-doubt or wondering if I'm just insane or wasting all my resources. But yeah, again, over all of these seemingly disconnected experiences, as I'm building this umbrella over all of them, I'm like, oh, this is, I think the fact that it is weird and out of place to bring cakes into these spaces is actually what makes it super exciting and engaging for a lot of different populations to be part of it. You've talked a little bit about the things that might be next for you, but you also started at the beginning saying it's a hard road because you have to self-fund at this point. Like, Does the difficulty and the sort of uncertainty of the road influence like what choices you make or what how you're thinking about what you might want to accomplish in the future? Yes, very much. I was actually very close to just giving up right before all of the dessert boxes, actually. I was just feeling really disheartened. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I was on the search and rescue team, but I was really just a pastry chef. So I had imposter syndrome there. But then when I'm working in kitchens, I'm like, oh, I'm a glacier guide and I have an imposter syndrome there. And you know, I'm going and doing all of these cool projects, but then I don't also have the bandwidth to share them all on Instagram. And so I'm like, oh, well, I'm not even doing enough with the projects I've done. And I mean, I'm working consistent jobs and I'm financially stable, which is good. But as far as like, I am self-funding these projects. And so sometimes I get really disheartened about that as well. And yeah, I think that's a constant battle for me of wanting to live this unique seasonal interdisciplinary life that I think is so much more meaningful to myself and my work, but also I struggle with how to make that uh, cohesive for people to bite into and also sustainable for me in the long term as as a creative. And I know that every creative goes through that and struggles with that regardless of if they're in one place or not, which is comforting in some small, tiny, messed up way. But um, yeah, as I move forward, like I said, the dessert boxes were really exciting. I'm moving to back to Alaska in two weeks. I'm going to be participating in a soundscape ecology program with the Anchorage Museum. I definitely want I see my work on a much bigger scale than it has been so far. And I want to start moving it more into, you know, the museum and like large scale installation work. And I want to do like a documentary about the the journey to a single cake, you know, and that could be through a couple different lenses. And I want to be doing more artist residencies. Your work is making such an impact and those boxes are making such an impact. And I'm excited to see all of what's ahead for you. At the end of Speaking Broadly, I always ask my guest if there's someone that they'd like to give a shout out to, a woman who is in the hospitality industry, who people need to know more about, who's doing extraordinary things. Um, do you have such a person to shout out? Okay. I am so inspired by women in food. Food curated, um, is, you know, Skeeter NYC, Lisa DeGia is just the coolest. And I've been so inspired by the way that she is visually storytelling with her film work. And I think that the way that she's telling stories with food film shorts is just so exciting. And she does such a beautiful job. Um, so huge fan of her work. Uh, Jen Monroe of Bad Taste Biz is the epitome of weird food experiences. And I just worship the creative ground she walks on. And she just hosts these bizarre dinner parties where she uses food in this very like weird, bizarre, structural, playful way. And um, I think she does it really well on like a corporate and business side, but is very much herself from what I can tell in, in the food playfulness that she masters. I'm obsessed with her. And then Leah Heifetz from Barnacle Foods in Juneau, Alaska. Ah, she is the coolest, just going out foraging wild bull kelp from the coast of Alaska and then creating these like beautiful products, her bull kelp salsas and um, her spruce tip jellies. And just, I think she's doing such a great job of partnering with local and indigenous people highlighting the stories of Alaskan food, which need to be brought on a bigger scale because Alaska is the best place ever. Um, I think she's just a great representative of the state and like the abundance of natural food there, which is really exciting. That's a fantastic 
trio. Um, thank you for sharing those. And thank you so much for being on Speaking Broadly. I've loved talking to you. And I, I think of you now as like Mary Poppins with a floating umbrella. You're going to take that umbrella and you're just going to float all over the world telling amazing stories and making change. So thank you, Mary Poppins. Thank you. I That means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For all of you listening, thanks for listening along. And we'll be back with amazing stories again next week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.